Nothing discussed with Anamahi in this conversation is meant to diagnose or treat any condition or takes the place of talking with your own healthcare professionals. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another conversation to take us from anxiety to clarity. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich from Sutter Health Kahimohala, and this series is a project of my colleague Trisha Kajimura and me and Kahimohala and Evan Leong at Brain Gain Hawaii, with many thanks to Coco Leong who always records for us on these Saturday mornings. So here we are trying to deal with COVID in the, well, not quite peak, but coming into the peak of hurricane season with a hurricane barreling toward us. It's Saturday, the 25th of July, and we're all watching as Hurricane Douglas is moving toward us and a lot of fear surrounding that in the context of COVID-19. And of course, with a lot of conversation about what is going to happen as we move further into the next month and will school open? That's been the big conversation over this last week. And for this conversation, we're going to focus a lot on education because, of course, for parents who are working and wanting to make sure that their children are in a safe environment, that they're learning, that they're not losing what learning they've had up to this point, many concerns over those who have been remotely connected to education and a lot of those kids who have not been and what does this mean for us as families what does this mean for us as a state in the middle of COVID and and years years beyond so with that we're going to have a conversation today with Ann Mahi she is very recently retired this month as the complex superintendent for the uh, Nanakuli and Waianae Complex in Leeward, Oahu. And she has a lot to say about this. She's won numerous awards during her long and distinguished career, including an award from Mental Health America for uh, Outstanding Government Leader. And that was in, the, I think, 2018, if I'm remembering that. And it's a pleasure to welcome Anne Mahi to our conversation today. Hi, Anne. Hi, good morning, Beth Ann. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share um, the things that are very close to our heart as educators. You know, sometimes people think that education is always about, you know, um, getting credits, test scores, grades, and all of that, but it really isn't. There's so much more to what we offer in the classrooms and, and the philosophy in our schools. So thank you for this opportunity to share. Well, I'm glad to talk to you about it because, of course, so many parents are, are myopically trained on, on what is going to happen with their child's school and with schools being able to make a choice of how they're going to offer education and, and then maybe having that choice taken away depending upon what happens with COVID because as we've seen in this last week, we've had the highest number of cases in a single day that we've ever had. And we've had two successive days in this last week where we had the highest number of days that we'd ever had. And we thought we'd reach a new benchmark and boom, the next day we were at another. And we don't know what is yet to come. And so with those concerns, as well as just the, the concerns of parents for their children's education, we're in a unique spot and one that clearly doesn't have anything defined about it other than what we keep finding out about it. And I'm wondering how you're assessing all of this as you've now stepped back from your professional position, but you're no less an educator because you have. So how, do you, how are you assessing what's going on with the DOE and in terms of how they're trying to keep people safe, keep kids safe, 
and open schools, at the same time getting a great deal of criticism from HSDA and HDEA and other unions and, and trying to put this all together. And yet we're talking about kids and their learning and what may happen next. How do you see this playing out now? Well, when this started in March, you know, I was the complex area superintendent. And the most important thing was having conversations with the administrators of all of our schools. You know, really starting to set ourselves up and understanding what our purpose will be as we move into these changing times. And it's important to understand that they have families, you know, they are part of the community. And um, what's happened, at least for us, is having those conversations started out with understanding that we are of service to the community in Hawaii. And that when we look at those that we serve, it is our students, our families, you know, and also everyone that works in our schools. You know, so we have to look at safety in that capacity along with the mission of educating the children in Hawaii. Um, we have always believed that in order to educate the children, you have to t touch the heart before you can teach the mind. And that has been something that has resonated in all of our schools. So in trying to sit and plan and determine how we were going to address education under these times, um, we kept thinking about the fact that we have to make sure that parents and you know children felt confidence and felt safe in the planning. So we did a lot of talking with um, parents and asking them, you know, how they felt. Because during the summer, we ran um, an extended learning opportunity um, session for those students who needed extra credits, for those who needed to improve, to transition to the next grade level, especially in the elementary levels. And what happened was we said, this is going to be our planning uh, practice for the reopening of schools. So in having those conversations, some of, I mean, in that practice, many of the um, schools were able to look at a hybrid model, a full distance learning model. You know, uh, we brought some students back into the classrooms. So when we started having conversations with um, parents and some of our principals actually called every family, every parent mm -hmm. asked them, how did you like the summer session? Um, how would you like, do you feel safe if we open up the classrooms and, and do the six feet distance learning piece and outdoor activities and all of that? That is really the key, you know, it is working with others, you know, working with our, um, our special education population, um, you know, practitioners and um, agencies, working with our um, school behavior specialists, you know, and our counselors to make sure that we're identifying students who may have needs, asking our parents to let us know if we need to do high touch contact with their children. So a lot of that was part of planning. Now, every time things spike, you know, in terms of cases, that's when we have to pivot. And so we have contingency plans that we have to think about. We cannot just blindly say we're going to open on August 4th because, but that's the plan, which is fine. But we have to be able to say, what if we are not able to open on August 4th because there's a spike? We need to communicate that very clearly to the community, that this is what we plan for now. But with everyone giving input that it's not safe, we're not prepared, 
Maybe we need to take a look at what the Board of Education is now saying. Maybe we need to push it back at two-week intervals until we can get a hold of the, the number of cases. I think originally we said, let's go four weeks without any um, high number of cases, and then we'll be safe to reopen. We need to start to go back to, to looking at those um, expectations and those plans that we originally set out with and not get confused by you know, the situations and, and a date that said we're gonna open on August 4th. And do you think that that fluidity or that flexibility has been well communicated to the public? I mean, given the fact that there were 4,000 pieces of testimony at the BOE and parents very concerned about opening the school uh, in whatever fashion, and then the kerfuffle over the three foot versus six foot and lots and lots of concern for the protocols with teachers and not just only screening and testing, but what happens if you have a COVID case in school that's identified on a certain day, all those things that we've heard from so many people. Do you think that you know, this fluidity and flexibility that you're talking about has really been communicated well enough to the public? There are two things. One is in order to be able to do that, you have to have a really strong system and structure in place that has clear communication um, throughout the levels of education. You know, and, and I think, and that includes the students and the parents, right, when we talk about education. I think it's been out there in pieces. You know, mm. like we said this before, now we said this will happen if this doesn't happen. Mm. We have handbooks that we gave, gave out to the schools and to the administrators. Um, but have those things, ha did we have the time to really go through all of those things um, with all of our parents and our, and our teachers? Have we had the opportunity to bring them back? And I mean, we have monthly fire drills, safety drills, <laughs> right? right? Lockdown drills. But have we had an opportunity to work with our, our school staff on th these new changing kinds of situation? And that's why time is important and that ability to give time to everyone to feel like we got the system in place now because we've been able to practice this we understand this uh, distance learning is a whole nother thing because we have to deal not only with the safety component but also the educational component we have many teachers that are really trying to learn how to adjust to a new way of teaching and that needs some time as well. So I, I think we just need to be able to put all the pieces that are out there, you know, that's all out there and, and say, let's give us some time to really connect everything and then be able to say, now we feel comfortable uh, in being able to, to, to open up safely and let's check to see governor what is happening with the, the number of cases that we have and if it's down to where we originally said so many weeks without you know, increasing in cases and down to single digits, then we'll feel safe to open up. You make a point about the fact that schools have all kinds of drills, fire drills and other drills, and that teachers are well acquainted with that. It makes me think about in, for example, the incident command structure that you know, FEMA has been promulgating that is used for all kinds of emergencies or, or large events, that the drilling that happens with that as an ongoing process, the what if process, hasn't really been something, according to what you've just said, that anyone's had a chance to do 
with COVID. Do you think that needs to happen very, very soon in the next couple of weeks? What if we had a COVID child today? Or what if we had a COVID teacher today? What would we do? How would we handle that? Um, you know, that's really important. This is, this is not a, a time where we can just kind of sit and wait and say, when it happens, we'll figure it out you know, or when we, when it happens, it's too late to figure it out. So we have these kinds of protocols that the state has put together, but we haven't had, like I said, that opportunity to really look at, so how do we prepare when we have the hurricane coming? You've got people out there buying up things, preparing themselves for two weeks. It should be the same kind of structure where it's communicated just like that and that every school understands. I mean, when we had emergencies out on the west side, you know, my principals were like, ah, okay, they were waiting for a command, I guess. Okay, this is what we're gonna do today, guys. Um, every principal, I need you, if you can get in there or send a vice principal who lives in the area, get your head custodian over there. We're gonna look at the situation, make sure you have your phone tree together notify people about what the situation is, advise them to come in or stay at home, make sure you're, the Red Cross is there. I mean, all those things are part of our protocols. So that's what the teachers are asking for. That's what families are asking for. Um, how do we communicate in case something, like a, a, we get a, a case of um, COVID in our schools, right? How do we handle that kind of situation? Where's the isolation room? Where, who do we call? Right. Who do we notify? Right. You know, what's the protocol for notifying the, the Department of Health, right? And who, do they come down? What do we do? Do we call parents? Do they go straight to the doctor? I think um, we have tried to, we've done that in Nanakuli Wainai. I mean, the principals and I have talked from the very beginning about what will happen in schools. You will have an isolation room. You will have teachers, you know, being able to send students down. Uh, mm -hmm. We wanted to be sure every teacher had a, uh, you know, like those laser digital thermometers, right? And then we get a state, um, you know, kind of directive that, no, you can't have every teacher with a, a thermometer because they're not trained. You know, they're not trained to take temperatures. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm a mom. <laughs> I, can't figure out how to, I got two degrees here. I think I can take, you know, uh, a temperature, just say who can and who can't. And then we'll do a training orientation and we'll be sure that every teacher feels safe, that they can check uh, themselves as well as their students before the start of every school day. It really is about making sure that our protocols will build confidence, right? and ensure safety for all of our employees and all of the children. And then the families will feel comfortable with being able to know that that's, that's what will happen. And if I get a call, this is what I need to be able to do. So where in the process do you think the Department of Education is now with that? Because it sounds pretty logical. I mean, most hospitals, most organizations, anytime people are coming together to go into work, most people are having their temperature taken. You try to go to see your doctor, most likely you're going to have somebody ask you some questions and do a screening before you walk in the door uh, or before you go and visit someone if it's you know, even able to go, if you're even able to go and visit somebody in, in hospital. Uh, this is becoming part of our daily lives, but it seems like this hasn't really been well integrated into the school protocol, whereas other protocols exist, this one doesn't very much. 
uh, where do you think the, the planning and the execution of, of any sort of you know, drill, if you will, is now when we've got just a few days before we're supposed to be seeing school open, if it in fact happens? You know, the Department of Education is in a very difficult situation when it comes to being able to just execute something like that because we have unions and we have contracts and we have, you know, um, is that going to be voluntary or is it going to be mandated? If it's going to be mandated, then we need to have an agreement with our collective bargaining um, units uh, because, you know, it's something that is part of a work situation so a lot of times it just takes time in order to come to those agreements because after a while there are many many agreements that have to be made um, the only way those things can happen is uh, and, uh, you know is if there is an executive order you know that's placed statewide mm -hmm. that this can occur you know and I, I think that becomes the hardest situation for the department you know having to uh, negotiate a lot of these kind of agreements for their for employees and then being able to make sense of it and then say, okay, let's do it. Um, I don't know uh, where we are right now. I think it was when I left, it was, you know, it can be done voluntarily. Um, so maybe the department is still currently working on and then working in conjunction with the governor uh, to, to see what kinds of things can be put in place that can make things, um, as a safe protocol for what we're doing in schools. A lot of teachers are in that framework of, I want to be helpful, I want to do this, I love teaching, but I also want to stay safe. I mean, that's where I think a lot of teachers are, are thinking, and you can't blame them for thinking in that way, especially if they're 60 plus, and they may be very young at heart, and they may be wonderful, in their lives and having a great time, but don't want to see that cut short by, by potentially being exposed to COVID and also very understandable too. So what do you think has to happen in the, the very short term? Because it seems like from everything that you're saying and everything that we've heard with the BOE and the DOE that depending of forgetting what happened at the press con with uh, the superintendent saying, yes, everything's going to go forward on the fourth. It seems like in very many ways, it's not going to go forward on the fourth and looking at two week intervals and two week intervals. I mean, we could be looking at a month or two before school actually gets started. So in, in the short term, what do you think is, is happening to be able to get that process moving? Because a lot of parents are afraid that this process is going to be never ending and they don't know what to do to make arrangements for their kids so that they can go back to work and resume whatever semblance of normalcy that they can. You know, I, I thought about it. My daughter is a teacher at uh, a science teacher at Kaimuki Middle School. And uh, she's been working all summer, you know, and, um, you know, and I, and I, we have conversations about how things are going. And it really is about, you know, you worry about your own child and, but I don't want to show her that I'm worried. So a lot of it is tell me what you're doing. Tell me what yeah. kinds of things you're going to uh, think about as you re-engage with students in the classroom. And so what's really amazing is the teachers are very conscious of the safety, the safety situation. Principals have gotten face shields for every child. They're, they're going to give face masks if they don't bring one to school. They, you know, they, um, teachers are, some of my principals actually bought 
microphones, you know, like um, microphone headsets for the teachers so that if they're wearing some kind of shield, um, the students can still hear them because the speakers are in the classroom. So, it, you know, that's the kind of thinking that's going on in many schools. And I commend them for, you know, looking out for those very details about, I can have the kids in the classroom, but if they can't hear the teacher, because you know what it's like when you wear a mask and you're trying to talk to someone, but they actually thought about these innovative things where they can put a microphone on and the, the kids can still hear the teacher explain things. Um, I think they put up a lot of, um, barriers in the classrooms so the mm -hmm. teachers feel safe. They're having great conversations with teachers about what more can we do to make you feel comfortable as we engage with you know, half of your classroom at one time, maybe 10 students in the classroom. Um, that's the real key is to have an engaged um, um, faculty and staff. So, um, you know, I think that's what has to happen. And we have to be sure that we put all the protocols. And before, I think back in March, I ordered sprayers for the schools. I mm -hmm. then ordered foggers. You know, those, it, it's very fine mist. So you can go in and you can just um, spray the classroom in minutes. And, and so that, that will make sure that we're disinfecting quickly, you know, every day after the, the students are, um, it, different changing different uh, with students every day the the other thing that's really important too is that um, we have opportunities and options for families yes. that this summer you know there were a lot of schools that were looking at um, having these options for parents who feel like they want to keep their children at home and they can have someone there to, to work with them our main concern that in discussing um, support for our teachers and staff is to have childcare. You know, is it possible to have childcare with community agencies on our campus so that teachers who have children that are not on cycle can mm -hmm. actually bring them and have them um, with a after school all stars childcare that as an option if they don't have family or anyone who can um, monitor their children while they're working. I think that's going to be one of the biggest issues that um, we will yeah. face is, is actually helping and supporting our faculty and staff as they work in our schools with other people's children is how do we help to provide for their children. I think a lot of people forget that teachers are frontline workers too. Yes, very and, much. And they have lives and they have families and, and like everyone else, they're looking for a safe place for their children to be, particularly if they are not in a school track that's happening at the same time that they're teaching. And that's another thing that we were talking about is, you know, like, um, could we have actually coordinated uh, so that different parts of the community were off on track at the same mm -hmm. time? So that you'd have families that live in one area be on track so that when they're off track, they have the older siblings that can watch them or they can have, you know, uh, other families maybe watch or family members watch them together. Not like every day, but only on the off track days. But that's another thing that takes coordination. And so, you know, we'd have to really start looking at um, things like that. It's a little out of the box thinking, but it would help with the logistical uh, nightmare of having to deal with busing, you know, food distribution and all that kind of thing. So again, you know, it's like having that uh, command center that says this is how we should be organizing your 
areas so that the tracks are based on the geographics of your community because that would really help as well. That might make it a lot easier for cohorting of those families so that they can create in effect a bubble and yes. make it easier for them to track not only what may be happening health-wise, but certainly to be able to offload each other for when their kids are on track and when they're on track. So it, a lot yeah. of, it takes a lot of coordination for all of this. I wanna ask you also, as we're talking about, you know, areas in which there may be problems in doing this, because it's not a one size fits all, as we all know, schools are making their own decisions. But then again, we have a lot of kids who are living in at-risk homes who are not necessarily connected to other kids that they go to school with, who are not necessarily connected to online remote learning, who may be moved around from where they were before. All of these kids that we worry about and, and wonder how, not, are we, uh, not only are we gonna feed them, but how do we account for their learning in these situations in general, and now we have COVID. Right. What keeps you up at night about that? It, it really is about connections. You know, um, one of my biggest worries was, um, as complex area superintendent, is are we reaching all the children? You know, and we had children who were no-shows in school, right? For whatever reason they, that they weren't coming. And so we were able to get funding from the legislature um, in 2018, and we started an alternative learning center. We've learned a lot about how we work with alienated students and, and the kind of needs they have because they're very different, right? From the regular, they come to school. These guys aren't coming to school. And a lot of them we found out was because they were in difficult situa family situations. Uh, they ran away or um, you know, they, they didn't feel confident uh, about themselves because of situations of trauma that occurred in their lives. And um, one of the things was we, we saw that when we got them, some of them had 0% attendance, right? By the time that that semester went by, we had 88% daily attendance from these students. And the things that we learned was that it was a very high touch community of students. We have to check in with them every day. And so what's happened, and be flexible. So for example, uh, the teachers would constantly call and be able to allow students to call them, you know, and always having that kind of high touch monitoring and counseling and behavioral and mental health supports anytime, anytime that they needed it. We had one student that transferred out to another school because the family moved, right? They, they were houseless. And so they moved to another location in the state. And we said, you know, we're going to keep you connected. We made contact with the principal. We said, you know what, we're mm -hmm. going to connect them to us. And you will, will you accept the credits? And they said, yes. So it's that kind of thinking outside the box to support very vulnerable students because that's their heart hurts and we have to take care of their very basic needs. So during this time that we've been out, the teachers and the principal, the vice principals, they've been calling the kids every day. They expect that you're going to contact us every day. And that structure has actually helped the, those children because they feel wanted. 
they feel cared, cared about, and they know that somebody's going to track me down if I don't call or I don't connect with them. So, you know, so I think that there's a lot of out of the box thinking that we have to do to, to really connect with the students. We drop off assignments at their homes so that they, they come out, they leave the packet, you know, by the, by the door, and then they wave at each other. They call them and say, it's outside, come outside and pick it up. And they pick up and they wave and they have a little conversation. So when I say high touch, I don't only mean by the phone or by through video, but they actually go out and they visit the students wherever they are, even in the homeless camps or shelters, they, they do that. And that takes a special kind of teacher and administrators and staff, but they do it. So when you say, you know, can we, we can, you know, will we, we must, you know, we must be able to do that and have that constant conversation. And they talk about, I love you a lot of times, you know, you got to take care because we love you. And that's what fills their bucket of self-worth and feeling like somebody cares about me. So that's, that's the important thing. That is the important thing, because one of the things that we have known for a long time about longevity, quality of life, when we're talking about an elder population, is that it's all about connection. And for little kids, it's the same thing. It's all about connection. For kids, it's for anybody. It's all about the same thing. It's all about connection. And knowing that there are teachers who are willing to take on the mantle of not only teacher, but in many cases, social worker, uh, what you're really talking about is somebody who is managing that child almost like a caseworker would be managing someone and being willing to do that in a very different way through you know, the avenue of education. But that's the thing that may make the difference. We've heard a lot of mental health professionals talk about the fact that they're concerned in general about how kids in the next five, 10, even beyond years are going to be affected by what has happened to them in their very young lives now, uh, not only academically, but social emotionally, uh, socially and emotionally, but all those milestones. And it's not just a graduation, but it's the things that can sometimes happen in those small moments in an educational setting or when kids are studying or when they're just growing up together that COVID has prevented from happening. And the fact that, you know, this model of, of going after a kid and saying, I love you, I care about you, understand that maybe the only thing that a lot of kids are hearing that may make a difference, not just this year or next year, but for the rest of their lives. So I, I hope more, more people are willing to do that. It's hard on teachers. I know having to be so much of everything. You know, um, I, I ran into a, a, a teacher who was a former student of mine, you know, um, and, uh, she shared something with me that really helped me to reinforce that belief that we need to, at any given moment, share that kind of um, uh, encouragement or um, filling the bucket of that person. Um, the, the teacher was, um, as a student, was a very Kolohe student. Always getting in trouble, always doing something, not showing up for class. And so I, I kind of figured out, okay, I think I know where she is. So before my fourth period class, I would go in the back, so they had this area in the back of the school, right? Where they would all gather. And so I would call her name out and I'd say, you have to come to class now or I'm coming up to get you. And 
pretty soon the gang kicked her out and said, you can't come here because that crazy teacher is going to go up and get you. She's going to ruin everything over here. So just go. So she would come to class and I would always tell her, you know, that you can do, you can do and be anything you want to be. And I did say, um, because you're smart, you're smart, you can do this. And so things went by and she got a lot of difficult times, you know, um, challenges for a child in a family living environment that really wasn't conducive for her, mm-hmm. left the house, you know, went through a lot of hardship. And she got herself, met some good people, got herself back into school and became a teacher. And she mm-hmm. came to see me and said, you know, the mm-hmm. only thing that got me through the darkest times is when I remember you saying that I was smart and I could do anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so that really means a lot, you know, as a teacher, that you can change the lives of kids just by saying just a few words one time or two times away. You know, she was in my class the whole semester. But just being able to continue to say that can take them through the darkest times of their lives because they remember you. So that was really... That's got to make you feel wonderful. And I mean, to know, A, that she became a teacher and remembered you and what you did which only goes to remind all of us that you never know where your words are going to land and the effect that that's going to have on someone's life. And that we all have the ability to insert those little thoughts, to insert some positivity in someone's life because you really don't know what that person may be dealing with outside of those moments that you're sharing together as a teacher student or as coworkers or whomever, perfect strangers but it doesn't hurt to be kind. And in filling somebody else's bucket, it only fills your own even more. And I think that's the whole point of, of that kind of way of, of being and what we need a whole lot more of now, COVID or no COVID. And you know, the, the whole idea of being kind to people, it, it really is important because, you know, by being, by being mean or disrespectful because you're not feeling good, you, you take away from others and you take away from yourself. And so in this kind of very difficult times, you know, we got to say, okay, well, education is really important, but it's how we educate that becomes mm-hmm. the key. And I keep t- I told the teachers, I told the principals this, I said, listen, you got to understand that unless the students are thinking, they're not learning. So the challenge isn't about time. It's about how you're approaching their, their learning about how to think, what to think about. What kinds of things can you tell me? What's your opinion about this, knowing this? How can we survive these kinds of situations? How do we become sustainable in our world? What are the problems in our community? How do we solve them? You know, those are the kinds of things that we need to change towards in terms of the education of our children today. It's not about whether you can do Algebra 2, but it's about what you can do with Algebra 2, right? It's not about just following one step after the other, but it's actually figuring out if something disrupts your path, how am I gonna overcome that? And so as we look at education, it really is about preparing the children for their future. It's about ensuring that they can think through problems, resolve issues in their own lives and for the community. How can we start to get them to think? Because it isn't only about an SAT test, right? It's about how you're going to apply that learning to be able to be ready, you know, as you move forward into this world, this new world that's being, they're being pushed into. 
I think that says it all. Anne, thank you so much for spending the last bit of this morning with me. I really appreciate the fact that we were able to connect and I wish you all the best in this new phase of your life, which I think may be quite short because I think you are too energized to be an educator in all the things that you do and all the goodness that you can pour into other people to just be home and doing some of the things that you love. That, that can happen too, but I think we're going to see you out there in the world doing a whole lot more in the world of education. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed today, and I, I know uh, you need to continue with getting this kind of information out to the world. Thank you again, Bethann. My pleasure. My pleasure. And to those of you who joined us today, if you have a topic you'd like us to tackle, let me know. You can reach me at my email, kozlovb, that's K-O-Z-L-O-V-B, at SutterHealth.org. And I'll see you next time for another conversation from anxiety to clarity. Be well, everybody.